Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now with the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China in the World. This week, there's really only one topic we could talk about: COVID-19 and its fallout. We're joined by an exceptional panel: Ian Bremer, president and founder of the political risk consulting firm Eurasia Group and G Zero Media, who's also the host of the podcast G Zero World with Ian Bremer; Bill Bishop, the founder of the Ultimate Insiders newsletter on China, the Cynicism China newsletter, who joins us from Washington D.C. And Simon Rabinovich, the Economist correspondent based in Shanghai. One note: we were looking for a Chinese voice out of China, but we couldn't find anyone willing to talk to us. One person we asked replied that living in China makes it impossible for me to contribute fully to an open and in-depth discussion on this topic. That speaks to just how political COVID nineteen has become. Overnight, we saw China basically closing its borders. No more foreign nationals allowed in, and each airline is only allowed one flight per country per week. Simon, you're in China, so let's start with you. This seems to be a much more hardcore shutdown than many other countries have taken. Why this step? I mean, there there are some countries that have have more or less fully shut their borders in the last couple of weeks.、Uh, India,、uh, even Singapore has has basically stopped functioning as as a transport hub. So China is not alone, but it, but it obviously is a really big change from. Uh, where they were a couple of days ago, and, and certainly their criticism of America at the end of January when it shut its borders to, to、um, passengers coming from China. So、uh, China, if you look at the official numbers and if you ascribe some credibility to them, clearly has done a really good job at stopping the spread of, of COVID nineteen. There's basically been no locally transmitted cases、um, for the last week,、uh, but there's been a, a relative surge in imported cases, cases more, more than five hundred at last count. So you know they're at a point now where they do want to get the economy back. Up and running, but the big risk now that they see、um, is is the virus coming in from abroad, and, and that's why they have applied these measures. Ian, I mean, you've been speaking about the possibility of a new Cold War between the U.S. and China. I mean, what kind of ramifications do you think China's shutdown will have on bilateral ties?、Um, I'm not sure that the shutdown by itself is going to have、uh, a big impact. I think more importantly is how the leadership. Decides to orient towards each other. There was, of course, no trust between these two countries before the additional pressure of the coronavirus、uh, crisis. We were already beating up on each other in terms of technology,、um, and there was already a lot of pressure towards some level of decoupling in terms of manufacturing, for example,、uh, given the tariff back and forth escalation before we got this phase one trade deal. Now. On top of that, that you have President Trump looking to blame someone, especially as the United States is about to enter into not just massive economic、uh, problems,、uh, but also、uh, as the healthcare system is stressed beyond its capacity, the potential that Trump is going to go after China very directly, much more than we've seen so far. He's he's been kind of back and forth on this over the last few weeks. I think is real. And I also think it's real. The Chinese will respond to it pretty strongly if that happens.、Uh, so、uh, you know, I, I don't. I wouldn't make the call yet that we're going to leave、uh, this crisis and be in a new Cold War. But I think it is highly plausible,、um, and we're certainly trending in that direction. 
Bill, look, over the last week or so, we've seen this fascinating narrative war being waged by China and um, possibly between various Chinese diplomats themselves, trying to shift the blame for COVID-19 onto the US by repeating this conspiracy theory that members of the US military um, brought coronavirus to China. I mean, what can we read by this fact um, that it's happening out in the open? Uh, Is coronavirus being used to wage an ideological war? So I think the sowing of doubt and disinformation about the origin of the virus has both domestic and international audiences. Domestically, I certainly have plenty of uh, Chinese contacts and in-laws who who believe that somehow the U.S. created this or the U.S. was behind it. So domestically, I think allowing that these these various rumors or stories or, you know, by various conspiracy theorists that members of the U.S. Army delegation to the World Army Games to Wuhan in October brought it certainly helps deflect blame inside China, where, again, you know, it's not our fault. It was our, you know, it was an external enemy. It was the U.S. who did it to us. And internationally, you know, I think China is is extremely worried and rightfully so that um, they are going to be blamed for the tremendous damage this virus is, is wreaking globally, both both in terms of public health and lives and in terms of uh, economics. And so internationally going out and sort of basically creating this alternative narrative that maybe it wasn't a Chinese thing and, you know, maybe maybe it was came from somewhere else. And, oh, maybe the U.S. did it and it came from the U.S. Then ultimately, I think when when once we get through this and there may be a more concerted effort to try and uh, hold China accountable, they will have created enough doubt that it's possible that that helps, you know, helps give them um, some cover. I certainly think that, you know, there've been so, there's been some talk that they're taking a page out of the from the Russian disinformation operations. Um, that's something I think Ian could probably speak to much more uh, articulately. But I think that there may be some element of that. Although I think the Chinese, though, you know, are also um, using it as a way in, in the broader information campaign and propaganda campaign their campaign they're waging. It's also, I think, more aspirational than some of the Russian operations, which tend to be more about sowing doubt and discord. This is also part of, I think, a broader effort by China to position itself as, you know, the responsible major power who bought the world time and is now in a position to help save the world. So, Ian, I mean, in the US, we're kind of seeing the mirror image of this with Trump talking about the Chinese virus and there were these reports that uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo scuppered the initial G7 statement by insisting on calling it the Wuhan virus. We've even heard reports members of the administration uh, tried to call it Kong flu. I mean, you said trending towards a Cold War, but I guess my question is, are there any voices of moderation in the US that are trying to sort of pull it back? Yes, there are. And there are also voices of moderation in China. Uh, I mean, this is what's so interesting, you know, Bill just mentioning, uh, are they taking a page from the Russian book? And certainly the Chinese foreign ministry on Twitter um, has looked much more like what the Russian government has been doing for some time than they ever had before. And that's new just in the last few months. Right. But then you have the Chinese ambassador to the United States in Washington do an interview with Axios and actually say that specifically disagreeing with the statement from the Chinese foreign ministry and saying, no, it's obvious that that's actually not where the uh, virus came from. It didn't come from the United States and the U.S. military. I've never seen that happen in Russia, that, that kind of public dissent between two different parts of the government. And I think it does show 
but there's a level of disagreement as to how much trouble the Chinese might get in if they really provoke a fight with a larger, more powerful United States, irrespective of how much better the Chinese may be looking right now in responding to this crisis that, again, they are initially responsible for. Now, the funny thing is, in the United States, you'll be shocked to hear me say this, but inside the administration, the voice of restraint right now is actually Trump, right? And, and it, it's, he's all over the map, right? He's all over the map. Uh, a month and a half ago, he was the one that was saying, look, don't beat up on Xi Jinping. You know, this is, this is, he has enough to worry about right now. He reigned Peter Navarro and the White House and others in. Then he was the one started picking up, after some members of Congress did, started picking up, call it China virus, China virus, we're fighting a war against a foreign virus. But then in the last few days, he actually said, yeah, they should have told us, but let's recognize that this they don't want this either. This is hurting them, you know, even more than it's hurting the United States. We'll see if that ends up being true. Um, and they're still like they're 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 they've got the phase one trade deal. They're going to buy lots of American agriculture. They're stepping up to that. Like there's no reason for him to do that if he's ginning this up. I actually think that there are many in the administration, including Mike Pompeo, who you just mentioned um, on scuttling this G7 statement, that are actually much more itching for a fight with the Chinese. And I think that Trump, as long as, right now his approval ratings are as high as they have been at any point since his inauguration. There's a bit of a rally around the flag. People are scared. You just got $2 trillion through. Trump gets some credit for that. But as this falls apart and Trump's, Trump's approval rating goes down, I suspect we won't be able to say what I've just said about Trump and then it's going to be much harder to find a voice of moderation. So, I mean, these conspiracies we're getting from both sides about biological warfare are a little bit silly. I mean, the US and China are both going down in flames economically here. But is there any chance that this might be a plain old stuff up, that perhaps there was an accidental release from one of the two labs in Wuhan um, that have been studying bat coronaviruses? So can I, uh, let me step in with what I've heard in D.C., um, which is that there are, I know from conversations, there are people in the administration who believe, um, I don't think they have dispositive intelligence, but they believe they have enough indications that um, for them to believe there's a very high probability this, this somehow leaked from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. I have no idea if it's true. Um, I hear that inside the administration there is... Um, you know, there are certain members who are advocating to go public and there's certain people um, who are the voice of restraint. Um, and so, you know, obviously, if that's true, that's just awful on so many levels. And again, I'm not I don't want to be you know, this is not about spreading conspiracy theories. I talked about the newsletter a couple of weeks ago, but it's out there. And there are actually some some fairly serious people who are who are, I think are looking at it and saying that this they can't rule it out. Simon, coming back to this whole idea of um, splits within administrations and going public, um, how how do you kind of read the situation within China? Do you, I mean, I've seen Radio France International actually reporting a story that uh, there was this open letter amongst the princeling elite proposing that Xi Jinping be replaced by an emergency leadership group. And that included some of the Politburo members. I mean, is that is that 
are we seeing signs of that kind of tension? Well, I think there was uh, a month ago before before the virus started rampaging around the world, there was, uh, you know, the, the biggest uh, buildup of anger domestically, uh, not, not just at the Princeton level, I mean, just among ordinary people as well, uh, about the leadership, about the handling of, of the public health disaster. Um, but it, it, it's changed so rapidly, uh, you know, as, as rapidly as COVID-19 has spread around the world. Um, and so, you know, uh, relatively liberal friends of mine um, in the last couple of weeks, I'd, I'd say their kind of dominant view is just one of, of profound disappointment um, with the way that, that the West appears to be managing the outbreak. Uh, you know, people often talk about uh, that the Communist Party is um, uh, enjoying something called performative legitimacy. You know, the idea that they don't have legitimacy at, at the ballot box, of course, but they've, they've delivered growth and, and, you know, relatively good management over the years. And there's now this feeling that, you know, Western democracy is suffering from a lack of, of that kind of legitimacy. And so I, I think the the mutterings and the anger directed towards Xi, there, there was an opening, there was a time for that, but 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 it's it's really closed quite sharply in, in the last couple of weeks. Uh, just one one point about the foreign ministry and and the you know the apparent split between the ambassador to the US, uh, Cui Tianghai, and Zhao Lijian, who's the sort of outspoken firebrand. I mean, not not to go too deep down the conspiratorial wormhole, but if you look at the the wording that they've used, uh, both of them are, are not kind of as much at loggerheads, I think, as they've been portrayed. You know, Zhao Lijian has kind of put out the idea that the military may have brought this in without specifically saying that it was cooked up in a lab. And you, you had the military games in, in Wuhan in October. Sui Tenkai has come out and said it was not cooked up in a US military lab. So as far as the Chinese public is concerned, there still is this possibility out there um, that perhaps it was accidental, you know, in the way that, you know, as Bill has said, and that there may well be more solid evidence that in fact it did slip out of the, the Wuhan Institute, but they've planted this seed of doubt in the public's mind. And, and that in itself, um, is 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 very potent in terms of kind of controlling the message domestically, and a, lo- a lot of people, uh, surprising people, seem to have bought into that, or or at least believe that it might be a possibility. And I know, Bill, you have you wrote about this idea that in fact the there might not be a split between these these two voices. That Zhao Lijian, the foreign ministry spokesman, is effectively being used or becoming this tool, and he he's now sort of done his job, right? There is disagreement within inside the within the, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. From from what I have heard, there are folks who are unhappy with Jolly Jen. Um, there are also folks who are very happy with what he does. I think what, when we talk about a split, there again, there, it may be something going inside the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. You know, Jolly Jen is in the I think the sort of the information or the the news department, um, whatever they call it, the Shimon inside the uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and Sui Tianqai is in the Meidasi, um, which is what the like the North American. Um, Section and so they Sway, even though he's a higher rank, he can't actually tell tell Jolly Jen what to do. Um, but clearly, Jolly Jen and his this this kind of you know this behavior, this sort of wolf, what they call wolf warrior diplomacy, where he's you know very aggressive on Twitter. That clearly has um, support, both popular support domestically as well as certainly higher up in the system. There, there obviously are people in the system who are more who are well above Sui Tianqai who think this is a good idea. In addition, the the information and sort of the, the kind of doubt and the conspiracy theories that the Jolly Jana has been forwarding around are also running running rampant inside the um, the Chinese internet on Chinese social media. You had, I think, Monday night, um, the um, China Media Group, which oversees China Radio International and CCTV, put out one of their commentaries 
um, the three questions for the U.S. and one of them was specifically about, you know, basically, uh, did it come from a U.S. lab? And so you have the propaganda system that, um, at a minimum, is not censoring, um, or, and it, and it, and perhaps also directing this. We don't know how much they're actually directing it, but they're allowing it to run rampant, which, given how controlled the Chinese internet is and Chinese media are, um, certainly would looks like an indication that there's higher level support, at least up through the propaganda system to allow this to continue. I mean, that's kind of a fascinating development that you might even have this sort of um, global times phenomenon within a ministry that, you know, you can sort of discount Zhao Lijian as, oh, that's just Zhao Lijian. He, uh, you know, that's his function. Um, it almost seems to be a higher level of misinformation that we're moving to. Uh, I think that's something to um, certainly consider. And I would also say, and I don't know if this is an official like political science term, but I mean, the thing about the lab and the, where the virus came from, you know, it's almost like they're, they're pushing it so hard that, you know, there's certainly, it's certainly leading some people who were sort of predisposed to believe that maybe this was an accident to think, oh, you know, look, this is basically like prophylactic propaganda. So they're putting it out there, creating this doubt so that if at some point the U.S. tries to actually come out with evidence and say this was leaked from, you know, the lab, um, they already have sort of created, they've already sowed all this doubt and misinformation. So people will just, it'll be, it'll be more easy to convince people that this is just sort of US propaganda. And Ian, can I ask you, you've, you've put forward this idea and you even have a podcast about this, that we're now in a G0 world, a world lacking in global leadership. Um, but in a way, the coronavirus has shown us something different, uh, a world where China's willingness to influence multilateral institutions is completely unconcealed, um, as we've seen through the reluctance of the head of the WHO to criticise Beijing for almost anything. Um, I mean, how successful do you think China's been in co-opting the WHO and other multilateral organisations in this? Um, I think it's clear that um, the WHO doesn't want to come out and criticise the Chinese, um, and especially given the way the Chinese intentionally mishandled um, the outbreak uh, in the early weeks, and the WHO ended up putting out effectively fake information on the back of that. No human-to-human transmission, as they said, um, you know, sort of early in the days when the Chinese government clearly knew otherwise, and they haven't been able to go after and criticize them. In fact, you've had reports from the WHO that have been reported on, for example, um, in the New York Times, journalists that are no longer allowed in mainland China, Macau, or Hong Kong, um, about just how fantastic, glowing, uh, hagiographic pieces about how fantastic the Chinese response has been after, of course, they've been responsible for this initial outbreak to begin with. But, you know, having said that, the WHO wouldn't be critical of the United States in this regard either, and neither would the United Nations. So the fact that the Chinese, you know, now have kind of blocking power, given their influence, given their funding, given the importance of their market, their economy, their political influence over a bunch of international institutions in the way that the Americans do, doesn't suddenly tell you, oh, we have strong global leadership. It just shows you that these institutions are becoming even less effective globally. That's a real problem, right? And the big difference I see here in 2020 compared to 2008 or 9-11 is this is the first G0 global crisis. Um, in previous crises, the Americans took the lead. The Allies followed. There were, was a strong rally around the flag effect inside the United States. After 9-11, the Russians even, and a strong adversary of the U.S. at that point, 
offered bases in the Central Asia so the Americans could help with logistics with Afghanistan. After 2008, 2009, the Chinese were skeptical about how fast the U.S. would be able to strengthen, but certainly followed America's lead, for example, in the G20 April meeting um, in, in, in getting on board uh, around uh, support for language on coordinated stimulus um, and rebuilding the global economy, consumer sentiment, and the rest. This time around, the transatlantic relationship much weaker, the EU condemning the United States for shutting down travel with uh, non-citizens, permanent residents, without telling the Europeans in advance they found out about CNN. Meanwhile, in public diplomacy, the Chinese are running laps around the Americans right now. Now, I mean, you know, Xi Jinping does strategy and Trump does America first, but it's not just about individuals. It's really about the structure here. And so this really does feel like a global pandemic that merits a global response. And we have anything but that. Yeah, I'm really interested in this recent sort of coronavirus diplomacy that we've been seeing with these Chinese medical supplies being sent, I think at last count, to something like 82 countries. And this idea of China as this humanitarian global leader. Um, Bill, I mean, how effective do you think this narrative is? Now we're kind of seeing a counter-narrative emerge. We're seeing these reports from Italy and Spain in the Czech Republic saying that these Chinese testing kits really might not actually work. Is, could this turn out to be an own goal by China? It certainly could. I think at this point, it's people, countries are desperate. And so anything is better than nothing unless, unless it you know, doesn't work at all or is, or is fake. Um, but I think that... You know, the Chinese, given um, their effective stranglehold on the production of, you know, masks and it was personal protect, protective equipment um, and their lead in, in creating testing kits. You know, China is in a unique position to deliver a lot of the, the public health goods that countries need. And so um, they certainly could if they do it right, they could, I think, win a lot of advantages. The question will be. Do they do it right? How much of this is going to be aid and how much of this is actually going to be sold? And I'm not sure we know the answer to that yet. I guess there's another prong to that where we're seeing kind of Chinese industry champions getting in on the act. Everyone's favorite liquor maker, Baidu, making disinfectant and the electric car maker, BYD, making masks. Simon, what does that mean? Is it kind of a move towards a command economy or is it just another sign that the sort of public-private line isn't really existing in China or are they just cashing in? What's going on? Uh, well, it was I mean, partly just a reflection of, of the realities uh, here in China, you know, a month and a half ago that the economy was supposed to have, you know, restarted February 10th, but there was a basic rule that you couldn't open up a manufacturing facility without having, uh, you know, a whole array of, of protective equipment and disinfectants. And so a lot of companies, including actually foreign companies here, uh, multinationals, uh, created production lines because it's it's not the most complicated thing in the world to, to make masks. And if you're a distillery, it's not the most complicated thing in the world to make disinfectants. So partly this was just what they needed to do to comply with with local regulations to to get back to business. Um, and then, of course, you know, being China, once once companies begin to move in, in a certain direction altogether at the same time, you end up with massive excess capacity, which is now where, where the country is today, which is also why, you know, they're able to, to make these donations or sales to, to you know, dozens, potentially hundred countries a, around the world. Um, so that, that, that's where China is. You know, other 
companies in other countries are, are you know, beginning to shift into the same kind of productive direction as well. It's just that China is the, the world's biggest manufacturing power. And so when it, when it goes there, it goes there much more quickly. Um, I mean, you are seeing, uh, you know, in many respects, many, many areas of the economy for, for several years now, much more kind of government control and stewardship of, of what companies ought to be doing. Um, so, so you could say that, that the past month has been a slight acceleration of that, uh, but, but it's not really, uh, you know, a watershed moment in, in that regard. Speaking about sort of strength of Chinese manufacturing, um, I mean, one thing that was raised even before this outbreak uh, was, uh, I believe, Gary Cohen last year at the US-China uh, Economic Review said, quote, um, if you're the Chinese and you really want to destroy us, just stop sending us antibiotics. Uh, and this is on the back of China producing 90% of the world's active pharmaceutical ingredients and supplying fully 97% of America's antibiotics. I mean, is there a possibility that China could, could weaponize pharma? I mean, cer- certainly there, there's a possibility that China could weaponize uh, pharma or any other you know, part of its, of, its, of its value chain, but doing so would be... Uh, you know, a tremendous cost to it to itself, because I mean, clearly, you have a lot of concern about reliance on China in all kinds of different sectors, and, and it will just accelerate efforts by other countries to um, be able to develop their own their own value chains. So, um, you know, China has pulled back from the brink with with rare earths in the past. I think at this kind of time of global health crisis, if they were to actually weaponize pharma supplies. I mean, that, that would be an entire other level of aggression uh, and, and it would cause years and years of damage for them. So I, I, they could do it. I don't think they will do it. I think that the discussions about, you know, what areas of the economy uh, are we in the West excessively reliant on China for, those, will, those discussions will only heat up in the coming months and years. Um, and I think things like active pharmaceutical ingredients, it makes sense that for something like that, you do have more productive capacity spread around the world. Um, so it doesn't necessarily mean that every country has to do it itself, but, but you don't want to have all of your eggs in the Chinese basket, clearly. Um, but it's not going to be a wholesale shift of supply chains away from China, because if you begin to say this sector is critical and that sector is critical, it's pretty difficult to know where to draw the line. So I think there has to be a sensible, mature discussion uh, about you know, what sectors truly are critical um, but but it's it's not everything. Maybe we should talk about the economic impact. I heard someone on a podcast saying that no event since the Black Death would have such a large impact on global economies. JP Morgan Chase is saying 40% drop in China's GDP in the first quarter. And Morgan Stanley is saying the global economy will contract by about 1%. I mean, Ian and Simon, what are what are your predictions? What are your best guesses about where the hits are going to be and how bad it's going to get? Almost every CEO I talk to um, in major multinationals in the United States and Europe um, have told me that um, they think they can make more money with fewer people in the next five to 10 years. So in other words, you know, their, their footprint in terms of global supply chain and labor is larger than it needs to be. And um, but they haven't been willing to do very much about it because the average CEO doesn't last more than five years. And uh, because they've been making a lot of money over the course of the last few years, the stock markets have been up, their returns have been good. And so, you know, why rock the boat and why, why particularly, you know, sort of annoy the Chinese government by potentially antagonizing them with pulling pulling folks out? Again, Chinese labor's gotten a lot more expensive. Uh, the competitive environment's gotten more challenging. There's no rule of law, no independent judiciary. We know all this stuff. But now you suddenly have this really big, like unprecedented sudden recession, might even be a depression. 
um, and a just-in-time supply chain looks really stupid and dangerous. You're like, well, we, we need more resilience. We need to be closer to where our consumers are. And you've got the CEO of Levi's, for example, saying our numbers are a lot better right now. Why? Because we pulled back from China and went more local back when tariffs were going up between the U.S. and China. We didn't wait for this coronavirus thing. So, I mean, I do think that a lot of CEOs right now are making decisions about let's decouple, let's pull back, let's localize. And that's before you see the Trump administration starting to really say, we've got 20% unemployment in this country. You guys need to be patriotic. And if you have jobs in China, you need to move them back to the United States. They're all petrified of being you know, pulled out individually by Trump. It's why they never go after him individually when they're in meetings. They never give him the real story. So I do think that we're going to go from what had been a tech cold war on 5G and Huawei and the rest is going to start digging into uh, manufacturing and services more directly from the Americans than the Europeans because of that added Trump administration issue, but more broadly. And I think this is a vulnerability for the Chinese in the medium term. We've, we've been talking so far about how they're improving in soft power and how they're showing that they can have a hand on the coronavirus. But, you know, nobody wins from this kind of economic disruption, number one. And number two, I mean, China's been the biggest beneficiary globally of globalization over the last decades. If globalization is now taking a serious hit for lots of reasons, rising nationalism and populism and tariffs and all the rest all over the world, China's not going to like that, right? Uh, and again, I think that's one of the reasons why the Chinese government wants to be careful about not pro provoking uh, potentially a much deeper fight with the Americans who ultimately have a lot more strength than the Chinese do in lots of ways. Simon, from your perch in Shanghai, I mean, do you see that figure of kind of 60 to 65 percent of companies restarting in China? It, it, does that seem plausible or is it just too early to tell now? We're seeing these reports of a second wave of infection and the border shutdowns and all of that. Uh, well, no, I mean, you can begin to look at, at different parts of the economy. And, and so certainly if you look at uh, the industrial sector, manufacturing, uh, the restart uh, level is actually well well above 65% now. Uh, you know, officially they say for, for large companies, it's about 95% uh, for smaller companies, small and medium-sized um, for them, it's about 60 to 70 percent. Um, you know, I've, I've spent a fair bit of time speaking to, to factory managers and executives in, in the last couple of weeks. Um, and it's, it's not just the official data. I mean, they, they actually confirm that. They say that um, supply chains are, are domestically uh, basically up and running again. Uh, they're not encountering big delays. Freight rates had spiked in, in February. They're back down in March. So the industrial side of the economy um, is is ticking over. Um, that, that's on the supply. And of course, on the demand side, the big problem is that you're going to have this huge demand shortfall because a lot of these factories at some level then feed into the global economy, which which has, you know, more or less evaporated in the last couple of weeks. Um, the other part of the economy is, is domestic consumption and domestic services. There, the restart is slower. The 65% level that, that Ian cited is, you know, a fairly good estimate of where things stand. You can look at subway traffic or road congestion uh, or, you know, uh, the numbers of people going to restaurants and stores. Uh, that is taking a longer time to start because you still have a lot of concern 
about the virus. A lot of people who are still living, uh, you know, relatively cocooned lives. Um, this is one of the reasons why they, they've shut the borders is, is that they know they need to basically restore confidence and to restore confidence domestically, you, you need to be able to say that you've got zero infections, not just locally transmitted, but also coming from abroad. Um, so that, that, that's why there is the urgency there. Um, one thing just to say about the overall global economic impact, I mean, Ian's absolutely right that, that how this plays out in developing countries is is the big worry. Um, and, and it is, you know, the, the global economy has never had this kind of a sudden stop since the Second World War. So we're really in, in into unprecedented territory. All that said, this is so different from other crises that we've that we've dealt with in in the last decades, and that this is ultimately a public health problem. But global manufacturing capacity is still strong, infrastructure is still intact. So you know, if by some miracle COVID nineteen is more or less stopped by the summer, then the bounce back in the second half of the year is going to be incredibly strong. Can we talk a bit more about supply chains? Because that's why our, our listeners tune in. Um, I mean, I, I know at least two of you have rather different views on what effect this crisis will have on decoupling between the US and China. And since it's becoming sort of a rally around the flag issue in China, that there's this push within China to make it more self-reliant and, and there's actually decoupling being pushed from the Chinese side. Um, what evidence do you see for this? You know, one thing to consider around the the pressures for decoupling are really what's going on politically inside the U.S. I think that the phase one trade deal in January, which seems like a lifetime ago, seemed to have arrested some, but not all the momentum towards decoupling. But uh, this this epidemic, I think, has really um, accelerated that momentum and I think moved it into, um, made it much more... uh, pressing for a lot of uh, U.S. politicians. And so I think that um, as much as CEOs and companies may may want to sort of figure out a way to um, maybe not go back to normal, but to move on from from the sort of the real talk about serious decoupling, I think they're going to become under a lot more pressure, at least the American companies, because of given the mood in the administration, but also uh, up on Capitol Hill, I think it's going to be very difficult for a lot of these big companies to not take further steps. And I think some of them probably realize it actually makes sense. And so I think the decoupling momentum, again, has um, increased significantly over the last couple of months. And I think it's going to only get get even more so as we see, you know, as this virus ravages, uh, you know, the U.S. economy and, and sickens hundreds of thousands of people here, if not more. Now, Simon, with that one, just uh, sort of a podcast stoush. Um, and you, you've argued um, something quite different. You, you've seen that, or you've argued that decoupling from the Chinese economy is no longer looking as likely as it was. Um, what evidence are you seeing for that? Um, I mean, Ian might be right about the, the the longer term outlook, and that certainly is is a factor behind China's thinking right now. Not trying to antagonize foreign countries to to the point of of rupture. In the short term, though, I mean, there's been a big change in the way that executives in China are talking about the market here. A month ago, there was a lot of concern about whether or not they'd be able to get production back up and running. Now that they have and they see that they can make things, the fact is they a lot a lot of them still have reliance on goods coming from Europe and America. And what what a lot of foreign companies have done over the years is, of course, they don't want to have excessive reliance on China. So they'll build in, you know, some parts of the value chain where they're still getting parts from other countries, the key parts, um, IP that they want to protect. 
But the fact is, there are actually ways that they can localize a lot of that production in China. And so I know both in the auto parts sector and in the chemical sector, executives are looking around and saying, we're not sure that we'll be able to have reliable supplies of these inputs from Europe and from America in the months to come. We know that we have local alternatives in China, which headquarters have not allowed us to use in the past. But given the uh, given the extenuating circumstances, we are pushing to have more of that production localized in China. So, you know, you're actually at a point where actually in the coming months, you might see some movement towards towards more regionalization, more re, uh, localization based around Chinese production. That that might not be the long term outcome, uh, but certainly short term to make it through the crisis. That that's what executives are talking about. Yeah, and when it comes to that question of information decoupling, that's a phrase I've not heard before. Um, uh, we are seeing reports out of DC now, aren't we? That um, the US is looking to expel Chinese state or considering expelling Chinese state media workers uh, in in retaliation. I mean, Simon, from Shanghai, how serious does this feel? I mean, it's always been difficult being a foreign correspondent. Do you feel kind of a new level of kind of um, danger, really? Certainly. I mean, to, to be clear, I don't, I don't feel personal physical danger. So I, I don't want to, you know, have listeners thinking that, that you know, I'm, I'm running around in a state of panic here. But in terms of being able to get the job done on the ground, it's become it's become very difficult. I mean, that, that's been the trend for a number of years already. Um, uh, you know, just even basic Chinese contacts have become much more reluctant to speak to foreign journalists. You now have this, um, you know, tit-for-tat uh, media expulsion battle that started. Um, and, uh, I mean, obviously China was in the wrong to begin with, but now that America has has begun to go in that direction, it's created an opening for China to hit back. And if, if they do expel yet more uh, Chinese journalists, you know, slash spies from America, then then you better believe that there'll be, you know, yet another escalation in China as well. And then on top of all of that, you then have, um, you know, concerns about foreigners bringing the virus into China. Um, you have, uh, you know, pretty nasty propaganda about the way that foreign countries have been managing things. Um, and so, uh, you know, there, there has been a rise in, in xenophobia, uh, on the streets of China, um, and uh, and for foreign reporters traveling around, it just makes doing your job that much more difficult. Um, and then, and one last thing on top of all of that is that at this time of of you know coronavirus, it's very very difficult to travel anywhere in China because you've got you know a security apparatus that is blanketing railway stations, airports. Uh, it's it's almost impossible to check into hotels around the country. So you know when you're a foreign reporter showing up um, in the boondocks, you kind of already stick out like a sore thumb. That sore thumb now is, you know, extremely bigger. And as far as the local authorities are concerned, potentially virus ridden. Um, and so it, it, it's just made, it's made it very, very difficult to be to be a reporter here. And it's not clear when when things will improve, uh, if, if they will improve. Bill, could you say a little bit more about the sort of narrative that you're you're observing? I mean, it was only two episodes ago that we were asking whether COVID-19 is China's Chernobyl. Um, but less than a month later, Wuhan's emerging from lockdown, deaths are spiralling in the US due in no small part to its flaws in the US political system. Uh, and Reuters is even reporting that Chinese students are paying $20,000 for seats on chartered flights back to China. Uh, do you think we're likely to see reports out of China saying that uh, this is in fact the US's Chernobyl? That would be ironic. Uh, no, there's no question that um, the, the narrative has 
has changed significantly as the facts on the ground have changed significantly. Now, we, you know, lots of people argue about the, the, the true official data, but it's clear that the Chinese um, have made a lot of progress in, um, in their total war on the, on the virus, at least inside China. I think, you know, when this first broke out and, you know, in, in late January, there was all sorts of rumors, she's under pressure, you know, he's, he's disappeared for a few days. Um, and now he's come back and he's the people's leader who's led the people's war to defeat the virus. And, you know, they haven't quite declared mission accomplished, but they're pretty close. And, you know, they're, they're, they've ramped up the narrative around this, this, again, as I think we expected, you know, this just shows the superiority of this, the, the socialist the CCP system. And, you know, good propaganda is, has kernels of truth in it. And certainly um, as, as brutal as the fight has been against the virus right now, um, the CCP efforts look, um, compare very favorably with those in the, you know, industrialized democracies like Italy, Spain, um, the U.S., for example. And so, um, you know, I think we're, we're, we're right now, I think we're past the Chernobyl moment. However, it, the, the Chinese are not out of the woods and Xi Jinping is, you know, they're under now tremendous economic pressure. And, the the party needs to be able to deliver the goods in terms of job growth, um, economic growth, and you know the domestic economy is struggling. And now, just as it's just as it's starting to recover, you're seeing a basically a collapse in global demand, which is going to um, add a whole bunch of new stresses onto the Chinese economic and financial system, and probably um, and also on employment. And so this this is it's too early to declare victory. Um, it's certainly not China's Chernobyl moment, but it's also again we're still we're still early into this, unfortunately. And finally, just one last question: I mean, what role do you think China is likely to play in the new world order post coronavirus? Just speaking from today's perspective, <laughs> that's a good small question to to end on. Um, China is is clearly emboldened. Um, and and I think it's already been quite uh, pushy in uh, a variety of UN agencies, the WHO, uh, in terms of trying to to set the agenda. And I think that we'll see more pushiness and more of a sense of sort of self righteousness on its part. Now, I don't think it's it's going to necessarily succeed in that because you'll have a really strong pushback, and you know, obviously from America, but even Europe is um, you know expressing displeasure about some of the ways that China is trying to turn. The virus into a PR coup, um, but but no, I, I think you will see that pushiness and that self righteousness to to a higher degree than than in the past. Well, I think China China is positioning itself as the responsible global superpower who who fought the you know fought the virus, bought the world time, and now is is providing aid and public health goods while. The traditional leaders of the world um, are struggling in the early stages of the epidemic. Now, does China want sort of the the kind of the the propaganda win while it depositions the U.S. a bit, or does it really want to step up and take on the some of the those ex- responsibilities of global leadership that are um, both expensive and expensive financially as well as politically, and so. Um, it's not clear if they're going to just be happy at knocking the U.S. down a few notches or they really want to step in um, and take over that leadership. It, it, it is, I think, um, 
ironic given how the mishandling of the of the outbreak at the beginning really contributed mightily to where we are today. But, you know, people will see how quickly people forget what happened at the beginnings and focus on the results and focus on how, you know, I'm in D.C. and, you know, people here and we're people here are scared, rightfully so. This is an awful virus. And so um, right now, China looks like they they looks like they were able to get it done. And um, but again, like I said earlier, it's still early days. And finally, Ian, if we do have a new Cold War, who will come out on top? Uh, We don't know um, is the reality. I I mean, obviously, the United States uh, still is much more comprehensive in its power. Um, And, you know, uh, when you talk about the military, uh, when you talk about soft power um, and irrespective of the Trump administration, it's still true. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that it's a, a while before we'd be able to really answer that. But I, I think the important point is that no one would have called China a soft power superpower before this coronavirus crisis. Uh, and, and, and I personally believe that there is no comparison between um, U.S. legitimacy in governance and rule and that of China. But I think it is uh, harder to make that argument today than it was a few months ago. Uh, the nature of the American healthcare system, the inadequacy of U.S. response, um, the, the, the illegitimacy of the upcoming election, the likelihood that it will be seen as rigged as a, by an awful lot of people while all of this is going on. The Americans are just incapable of leading by example in a way that they have for generations. And, you know, when we beat the Soviets the last time we had a Cold War, yeah, we beat them because we spent them into the ground and our military was ultimately more capable and the economy didn't really work. But we really beat them because our ideas were better. We really beat them because the Soviet citizens and all the citizens in East Bloc countries looked at the United States and they said, these guys have a system that we would much rather be a part of and ours is illegitimate. Um, I I do not believe that the average Chinese is looking at the United States right now and saying that in the way that they might have 20 years ago. And I worry that a lot of people outside the United States are having some serious questions right now, too. So ultimately, this is becoming a much tougher fight than we'd like it to be. And in large part, it's because we've been shooting ourselves in the foot, not because of what the Chinese have been up to. Ian, Bill, and Simon, thanks for joining us. Our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Thanks to my co-host, Louisa Lim, and our guests, Ian Bremer, Bill Bishop, and Simon Rabinovich. Background research and logistics by Julia Bergen. Our editor is Andy Hazel. Our theme music is by Susie Wilkins. And our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danter. Bye for now. Thank you.